How's everyone? Good? Are we good? All right. So when I first became pastor here, no one ever brought their Bibles to church. And so basically I just made it really awkward every Sunday until people started bringing their Bibles. It eventually worked. Um, for the most part, we might have phased out of that. Now that's okay. But I think I'm going to do the same thing now at the beginning of sermons, okay? I need some energy in the room, all right? I need people, I need to know that people are here because I want to be here, okay? And they're not being paid by Chris Anderson. Um, and so, uh, how is everyone? Well. All right, there we go. Welcome to uh, First Call, and we're glad that you're here this morning. Glad that you have joined us for worship uh, on this Valentine's Day. Um, this is a special Sunday in the church calendar. It's the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, Lent is a season in the church where we, uh, on purpose, intentionally try to prepare ourselves for um, the Easter weekend celebration, which is coming up uh, in a few weeks, in a couple of months. And so during Lent, you'll often hear people will fast, will give up something, or will add on a spiritual discipline. Uh, if you were able to be here for Ash Wednesday service, Lent actually began on the 10th this last Wednesday. Uh, you were blessed by that with Melanie. She's our resident Lent expert. Okay, um, And one of the things we do here at FC Cubed is that we have a tradition. We started a few years ago of going through an Old Testament book, a small Old Testament book, uh, in order to help us process as a community the season of Lent. Um, and again... For me, the kind of best metaphor image I have is Lent is a time for me to go through my soul as if it were at home and do some spring cleaning. Uh, and to look for maybe some sin that's been rooted in there and to look for maybe some bad habits that have been rooted in there and to look for maybe some um, more disciplines, maybe create a chore chart, okay, so that things are a little bit better in the spiritual home. Um, and then with the goal being, again, when we get to Good Friday, when we get to Easter Sunday, um, we're ready, right? And we can more fully experience um, and celebrate and be let out into the world by the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. So we, we have picked these Old Testament books to walk through, uh, and it's been one of my favorite things usually of the year. Uh, I always look forward to, you know, what am I going to do during Lent? And so a couple years ago, if you remember, we did Lamentations, um, which is the saddest book of the Bible. Um, we all took little doses of Prozac for about six, week, uh, six weeks and then, then moved on. Um, if you remember, we created the visual or the audio uh, of the different voices and lamentations with those audio files. Um, so that was a really cool and unique series for me. Last year we did the book of Jonah, um, which was a fun series to do. Not fun personally, because I kind of felt like I went through that Jonah experience. Uh, which is not so great. And so we're doing Amos this year, which is great because Amos doesn't get swallowed by a whale or anything like that, okay? So I'm hoping it's a safe pick on my part. Um, and it's another one of these Old Testament books that perhaps gets overlooked and perhaps it's hard to make sense of on your own. Um, but maybe digging in together, um, we might find uh, that God might have some powerful things to speak to us through this book, as well as... Um, to lead us through the season of Lent. So if you would, turn with me to Amos chapter 1. Uh, I believe, if you're in an ESV Bible, one of the hardbacks, page 764, Amos 1. If you have your own Bible, you might want to earmark it. It's a hard book to find. Uh, so once you get there, make sure you're there. Um, 
We'll start this morning. We won't be very ambitious. We'll just look at the first two verses, okay, as an introduction into the book of Amos. I think, though, we'll find that um, there's <coughs> a lot in these first two verses to set us up for a successful trip um, through the book of Amos. Um, now, before we get started, a little bit about the book of Amos, okay? Um, the first thing you should know is the book of Amos is part of what's called the book of Twelve. Um, and this is part of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Um, they have 12 prophetic books. Sometimes we call them the minor prophets. Um, and it's not because they don't mean as much. It's just usually because they're much shorter than the major prophets, which, you know, like 60 chapters in Isaiah. Like, who needs that? Okay. You got a shorter, you got a shorter books. And in the Hebrew Bible, it was just one book. They put all 12 of them on one scroll because they were that small. And so it was just one book of their Bible, the book of the 12. And Amos is the third in that collection. Um, because Hosea, and then Joel, and then the book of Amos. Um, it's a very short book, so it is nine chapters, but that would be deceiving, okay? Those nine chapters just consist of about 150 verses, just over about 2,000 words. Um, takes about eight pages or so in most Bibles. And then I've gotten this confirmed by multiple sources it can be easily read through in about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, that's like at a comfortable reading pace, I think, for the average person. Um, and so I would encourage you, we'll just get started this morning um, and not really get into the content, though, of Amos, um, to maybe this week once or even twice just read the book of Amos. Um, sit down and read it. It's been 15, 20 minutes. I'll tell you a couple of things. One, you're not going to understand some of the th- stuff that's in Amos. Not because I don't believe in you. It's just because when I sit down and read it, I don't understand some of the stuff <laughs> that's in Amos. Um, but we'll work through that together. Uh, uh, two, you might find yourself a little overwhelmed with some of the imagery and, and some of the things going on. Um, so don't be discouraged after you read it if you do this. And don't be paralyzed. Be like, I can't go and listen to any of this after I've read through this now. Um, but I think you'll find you might have one or two questions that we'll probably end up going over. Um, and I think it would be helpful for you to see what's your general impression. I mean, just sitting there after reading it, what's kind of your general impression of Amos, of his message, of um, the kind of temperament he had, and the kind of broad themes that he is presenting. Um, Amos is one of those books in our Bible, like Lamentations, um, that is very much overlooked. Uh, there's a homiletics professor here in Texas who um, teaches preaching classes, right? So he hears student, seminary students give sermons about 100 a semester for the last 20 years or so, and, and he gives a lot of sermons, right, as a preacher. And he says he can count on two hands how many times he's heard the book of Amos preached uh, in that many years. Um, and he's like, and really a handful of those Three or four of those were like forced, right? As part of the lectionary for that day. So like they couldn't avoid having to deal with the nameless text. Um, and he gives a reason why. I'll quote it for you here. Um, we'll see it's pretty accurate. Why is Amos not preached, he asks. Amos is tough. Amos is blunt. Amos says things that no one wished to hear two and a half thousand years ago. Things that no one wished to hear today. Preachers are taught to climb ladders from the youth pastor to associate pastor, senior pastor. To climb that ladder, it will hardly do to ruffle too many comfortable feathers. Yet, Amos is the chief ruffler of feathers. Not to put too fine a point on it, sermons from Amos 
would knock one off the ladder to success. Um, and so, well, I'll, I'll repeatedly probably mention this, but what I want you to have as we go through the is, is some cognitive dissonance between Pastor Mike, whom you love, <laughs> and Amos, who you might find yourself at odds with sometimes. Like, hey, don't say that about me, right? Or that's, you know, that's not how we culturally view things, that kind of a thing. So Amos can be kind of offensive, um, but Pastor Mike is not. Um, he's just, we're just reading it. So, so I'd like for you to, to maybe start adopting that. Um, and then as we'll see, Amos is just going to be a great companion for Lent because it is about the sin and, and the prophet calling out the sin of God's people um, in such a way that we might be able to relate to maybe some of the sins that we find in our own lives or in our own worlds globally or nationally, culturally, um, and help us walk through our own journey in Lent uh, to prepare for Easter. Um, so with that, we're going to read the introduction and talk about that this morning to the book of Amos. It's the first two verses, um, verse 1 and verse 2. Um, and we're introduced here to the two main characters in the book of Amos. Verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion, nutters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn in the top of Carmel with theirs. So here we're introduced to two voices, which will coalesce into one in this um, series of sermons from Amos that were given. The prophet, we have Amos, and then God, the one speaking through the prophet, through the prophet to his people. And um, we'll start with Amos, okay? Um, we're not given a lot of information about Amos. In fact, this is the only time in the Bible he's mentioned as a person, as a historical person. Um, there's another guy named Amos. You've, you'll find he's Isaiah's father. It's a different word in Hebrew, but we may get the same word in, in English. So that's not, don't think you can go find Amos somewhere else. Isaiah's father is not this guy, this prophet. Um, so all we know about Amos is from the book of Amos. Um, and really from two verses, this verse and then a later verse in Amos. Um, so we know this about him. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know if he had a family. Um, but we know he was among the shepherds of Tekoya. <laughs> Tekoya, obviously, we all know where that is. Um, okay. <laughs> Ten miles south of Jerusalem. Okay, so if you've got a mental picture in your mind of Israel, up against the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem is down south. Um, Tekoya is a very small kind of rural town south of Jerusalem, but close enough that it's easy to make a trip right up to Jerusalem, up to the temple. Um, Pretty close to Bethlehem as well, which will become famous um, for Jesus' birth. Um, and we're told he's among the shepherds there, okay? Now, this word for shepherds is a very rare word in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, it only occurs twice, once here and once elsewhere. Um, and it's not the normal word for shepherds. And we're used to, um, or at least should be used to, I think, seeing of shepherds as kind of a low-class low job. It's not the sexy job. Right? This is not for the people who graduated high school. Um, the shepherds are generally tough people, loners, they don't have great social skills, they're not very hygienic, right? Um, but this word, um, we know because of its use in the surrounding ancient Near East, um, is a word that actually means a manager of shepherds. So Amos, we should think, 
probably does less actual like shepherding, like has his own little flock. Um, he might and maybe does, um, but he is also a kind of a manager. Okay, um, he's about as close to middle class as you get in ancient Israel. Um, in this ancient world, you really had the elite and the poor, and it was very much not a middle class. But this would be kind of as close as you could get, analogy-wise. He was not rich. Um, but he was also not a poor, ignorant peasant, okay? This is someone who probably had some business skills. Um, this is someone who probably did some traveling and so knew a little bit about different societies and history and international relations, which we'll all see throughout the book of Amos. Um, he probably works, if he was a manager of shepherds, for a wealthy family or for the government. Um, and so he may have even worked for the temple, okay, and uh, managed the different shepherds and then helped coordinate the different sheep who would go up to the temple for sacrifice, um, that kind of a thing. Um, if you flip to Amos 7, we get the other piece of biographical information about Amos. Um, just a quick context for this passage, we'll pick up in verse 12. He's in Israel, the northern part of the kingdom, at their temple, and the temple priest is kicking him out, uh, and so he's going to have to defend himself. So Amaziah, the temple priest, in verse 12, says to him, O seer, which is kind of like a dis, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary and is the temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor I am not a prophet, nor a prophet's son. But I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. And so this is kind of as close as we get to a call um, for Amos. We know he's not a prince, he's not a king, um, he's not a priest, uh, and he's not a prophet, right? He becomes a prophet, but he, he doesn't train up to be a prophet, okay? He doesn't have it in his family, um, you may have heard this or may not have. I think the idiom's slowly fading away from English language. But sometimes people, when they're commenting on something with their opinion, they'll be like, look, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but here's how I see it. Um, and this comes from the book of Amos. He says, I wasn't a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, but God spoke to me, and so your words don't matter that much to me at this point. Um, and so this is all we get about Amos, the man, Okay. Um, we do know from this opening session, if we flip back to verse 1, the time period um, that he is ministering in and the kind of setting that his mission uh, occurs in. Um, so he is called to minister to Israel. Now, Tekoya, remember, is in Judah. It's in the south of Israel. This is during a time period um, in the 8th century where the Israelite kingdom under Solomon, it was this real big, tight kingdom, it's been split into two. So you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah, and the northern kingdom is called Israel. It can be a little confusing because before the split, we call all of the Jewish people Israel. And then after the northern kingdom goes away, we call all of the Jewish people Israel. But for a short period of time, Israel is actually referring to a distinct nation, okay, above Judah. There's 12 tribes. Two of the southern tribes remain Judah. Uh, and then the ten northern tribes become Israel. Um, and they've, by this point, already had wars against each other, already made alliances and various deals. Um, so they're very 
two separate uh, economic, religious, political entities at this point. Um, so Amos is living in Judah from Judah, but he actually is called to go to Israel. He goes up north and talks about the sin he sees up there. Now don't worry, he'll have his own things occasionally to say to his own people. Like if y'all don't listen either, what's going to happen to them will come your way. Um, but he primarily goes to the northern kingdom in Israel, which is why they try to kick him out. They say, go back to Judah, where you belong. Um, and he's in Israel during the days, we're told, of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. This would be approximately 750 to 790 B.C., okay? Um, and then we're given a date, um, or the closest thing to a date, two years before the earthquake, the way it's worded, the earthquake, makes it sound like whoever originally got this letter or heard this um, book would have known exactly what it was talking about. Like if we said two years before the towers fell, we would know. Okay, yeah, that's what it is. Um, but obviously we're more than two and a half thousand years away from that, so it's more difficult for us. Our best guess is it's referring to an earthquake that happened in 760 B.C., um, which would fit right into the timeline of these two kings and make perfect sense for Amos' ministry. We know from archaeological digs there's this huge earthquake in 760. It stood out in the minds of Israelites. Other prophets used it as a vindication uh, for their message. Zechariah uh, does this in chapter 14 of his book. So we think this is probably the earthquake being referred to. So we could maybe zero in on Amos' ministry between the time period of 760 and 755. Now, what you need to know about this time period, and what we'll see throughout the book of Amos, um, and what's implied through naming Uzziah and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, is that this was a time of great economic and political growth for both kingdoms. Um, the reason is, as they split and had enemies kind of all around them, they got smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, they were kind of a fraction of the size of Solomon's kingdom, ge geographically speaking, land-wise. Um, and their northern neighbors were their biggest fear, Syria. Um, and what happens is a bigger kingdom called Assyria comes and defeats Syria, and then uncharacteristically goes into a period of 50 years of about peace. Like they just quietly step off the scene, which is the perfect time for Jeroboam and Uzziah to step in and say, our one biggest fear is gone, has been defeated, and so we're going to expand. And in fact, Jeroboam has these very impressive expansions in his kingdom. And so now, by the time Amos gets to Israel, uh, they have new trade routes, they have new industries, they have all kinds of new natural resources. And this is what Amos sees. He sees a lot of new money has come into this country um, but it's being appropriated in a way that Amos deems um, incorrect uh, and insulting, ultimately, to God. Um, and so he goes up to Israel to prophesy, uh, and as we'll see throughout the book of Amos, his message, as most prophets, is one of pointing out sin. He comes and he speaks God's heart towards the various things that the Israelites were doing wrong um, and the various judgments they might face if they kept going in these habits of wrong behavior. Um, for those of you who can't follow along mentally, chronologically, um, 755, 760 is where we'd probably locate Amos. In 722, Assyria kind of kickstarts their military back up, 
Um, they start invading other countries. And in 722, they come and destroy Israel, the northern ten tribes. And they're just gone for it. They're never to hear from again. So after that, Judah, it's just everyone's just called Israel. The remaining survivors in these southern two kingdoms. Um, so this is right before the first big attack, uh, the annihilation of the Assyrians on Israel. So that's Amos. This is his time period, his background. This is his mission, okay, to go and speak to the people of Israel. We'll find they're not very receptive to his message, right? No one likes to be told that they have failed and they're doing things wrong. Um, and no one likes to be told necessarily that it's their own God, in fact, who might be bringing judgment upon them. Um, they'll continually fall back on uh, old promises, right? It's kind of like, Someone just plugging their ears and saying, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, even though they're in these horrific lifestyle patterns, right, that are going to lead to death. Um, This seems to be what the Israelite people do, and what maybe some of us do when we're in these patterns of sin and disobedience. So that's our first character, Amos. Um, God's going to speak through Amos. Um, He is probably just a hard worker, uh, has a good reputation. Um, We know that Amos is one of the, literary-wise, one of the more polished books. Um, we'll see this. Uh, his imagery, his metaphors, his parallelism, his poetry um, is almost unmatched in all the other prophets. In fact, you will find people who say Amos is the highest um, you get in prophetic literature as far as like pure literary form goes. It's a beautiful language. Um, the way he, he matches and mixes all kinds of different images and senses and, and those kinds of things. So we get the, the messenger, Amos, and then we get the one who gives him the message. So we're introduced to the second person. First we see a shepherd, and now we see a Lord, the Lord, in all caps. This is God's personal name, Yahweh. And it says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Make no mistake, this is a stab at the Israelites. Right, Jerusalem's in Judah, where the original temple is, and he's saying that's where the Lord speaks. It's not at your temples up in Israel, right? And these pseudo-religious practices that y'all are participating in. And the pastors and the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. And so it's this message of judgment. It's this message of um, destruction that's coming their way. Um, what most interests me about this though, is the way that God is described. In particular, God's voice is described here in the book of Amos. Um, you'll see here, it says, The Lord roars from Zion. The Lord roars from Zion. Um, the, the idea behind this, the implicit metaphor, is that God's voice here um, is the roar of a lion before he pounces or attacks um, which would make even more implicitly the metaphor in play here is one of the Lord being a lion. Um, and this, I think, is very unique and telling imagery um, that we might benefit from really thinking through in a deep way. Um, what does it tell us? Um, what would we learn about God if we thought of him as a lion? You know, we get all kinds of metaphors in the scriptures. God's called lots of different things. The two main ones we focus on are God as Father and God as King. Um, both of those, though, are still metaphors. We take something from our human realm and we try to apply it to God. And it's useful and we have precedent for it in the scriptures. There's tons of other metaphors given for God. 
Um, and lion is one of them um, throughout the Hebrew Bible. It was actually a very popular uh, animal in the ancient Near East um, in the sense that it was seen, right, such as a symbol of power and brute force, that one who could conquer a lion, right, was like the ultimate, the ultimate awesome person. Um, so we know that certain Assyrian kings had um, dens of lions. Um, you remember from Daniel, maybe? You go into the lion's den. It's a popular thing, just to have your own little collection of lions. Um, one Assyrian king in particular has like this extensive breeding program of lions. Another Assyrian king had a pet lion, um, and he used to bring it with him in battle, um, which I'm just saying is pretty impressive. It's one thing to go into battle with somebody. It's another thing if they bring along their pet lion. Uh, you start thinking twice maybe about what you're about to get yourself into. Um, and then in the, the Hebrew scriptures, we see this, this imagery and this metaphor picked up again. Um, the Lord here represented as a lion. Um, and it's something that indicates judgment, right? Authority, um, power. Um, a roar is a kind of foreshadowing warning about an impending attack. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of animals that we're willing to play around with, right? I'm not scared of a lot of animals. I'm not scared of cats, except for Chris and Janelle's. They're pretty scary. They attack me. Um, you know, I've got a pit lab mix, and he'll play pretty rough with you. He's super friendly, never hurt a fly. Um, but if you get down and tumble with him, right, he'll tumble with you. And so if I were to take my shirt off, which I won't, that's a different Sunday. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, you see, there's some scars. Once again, testify, you know, you play around with the river enough, you get some nice little battle scars going around. Um, but I'm still willing, right, to play around with river, you know, with the normal little cat, right? I'm going to slap it around a little bit, play with it. Um, <laughs> And then we go to zoos, and we're so used to the domestication of animals, right? That I can remember even just recently going to a zoo and seeing the lion display. And instead of it humbling me, it almost empowers me. I'm like, I'm part of humanity, and we put you in that cage. <laughs> and are controlling you, and have ownership over you. Uh, and it's, it's very safe and comfortable when you've got that glass display in front of you. And when you hear the roar, you're like, wow, that's impressive. And when you maybe see a live feeding, you're like, wow, the brute force. Um, imagine, though, if you were to take that safety glass away, and that was you standing a few feet in front of the lion, and there was no live demonstration of a feeding. There was just your live body standing there. And then the lion, in all of its ferocity, roars at you as if it's about to pounce on you. I would imagine you would get shivers down your entire body. I'd imagine that you might have like a live flash before your eyes moment. Like a, this is probably it for me. This is how I go down. I was killed by a lion. And you'd have this fight or flight reaction, probably, right? Um, I'm either staying here and dying or I'm trying to get out and get help. Uh, as fast as possible. Um, when Amos uses language to describe God, he often reaches into this metaphor of a lion. 
It'll be throughout the book of Amos. If you were to Google Amos and look at Google Images, you'll see most of the logos are of a lion's face. Um, the lion roars, a lot of the sermon series. Um, the lion is roaring from Zion. Now what I want to do real quickly this morning is talk to you about linguistic theory, um, which I know was what everyone was hoping for on a Sunday morning. I'm going to go to church. Hopefully we've got some linguistic theory in there. Um, this is one of the things that makes us unique at FC3, right? We kind of pride ourselves on really digging in and, and trying to think more deeply about things than, than just on the surface. Um, I can probably guarantee you we're the only church in Sugarland that's talking about this um, this morning. Um, what I want to introduce to you real briefly is a concept that I learned a few years ago and has been very influential for me. And I think it helps us with passages like this and with metaphors like this. It's called Cognitive Metaphor Theory. CMT, okay? And it's really not as difficult to understand as the big name makes it sound. Uh, I've used a lot of papers, I've used in presentations. Cognitive metaphor theory is a new way of understanding how metaphors work, okay? The classic way of understanding what a metaphor is, and you probably know this from school, right, is it's a direct comparison of two unlike things. And it's really a linguistic, it's a language thing, it's a rhetorical flourish, right? Um, and it makes you notice things that are similar and things that are dissimilar between these two unlike things. This goes all the way back to ancient philosophers up until a couple hundred years ago. Um, when science started getting off the ground, we started scanning brains. And when linguists started being able to connect how humans use words to what's going on in the brain, we started recognizing that metaphor is actually a lot more than just language games. Metaphors actually affect the way we think, and the way we act, and the way we experience the world around us. Um, it's not just words that we use. In fact, at a deep level, um, a very solid argument can be made that we live our brain's function as metaphors. We interpret everything as a metaphor. Um, I'll give you the classic example for this, and this will help you understand the difference between metaphors language versus metaphors a thinking thing that changes your brain, interacts how you act and experience things. Um, think about how someone might talk about an argument. If you're using phrases for an argument, right? You might say, I lost that argument. Or you might say, I won that argument. Or you might say, he defended his points pretty well. You might say, he went on the offensive. That person attacked him ruthlessly. Um, that person hit him low. You might say, um, he was defeated or was able to defend that point. What you'll find is, in almost every way we actually describe arguments, we use the language and the experience of a battle or a war. And so the foundational metaphor for cognitive metaphor theory is argument is war, okay? And the key here is to realize, right, this is not just a game we play with our, our minds, with our lips, with the language. We actually think this way, right? We think that arguments are like war, which is why when you have an argument, you have the feeling that you've lost and you're crushed or you win. And it's why when you have an argument, you see the person you're arguing with as your opponent, even if they're your spouse, right? In this case, no, it's me versus you. We're in a battle. Who's going down, right? It's not going to be me because I'm really stubborn. 
Um, it influences how we see arguments, how we interact and experience them, how we even emotionally react to them, right? Arguing for most of us tends to arouse our emotions, gets us angry, um, gets our voices raised, those kinds of things. And so while it doesn't turn into, hopefully, a physical conflict, right, the very way we talk about um, arguments maybe is actually just a reflection of how we're already thinking about them. We inherit the metaphor, and that's the culture, that arguments are war. Um, imagine the society, and such societies exist, where arguments are not seen metaphorically as wars, but are seen as a dance. Imagine how that would change an argument. How that would change how you view who you're arguing with, how you might experience that argument, how you might try to contribute or participate in that argument. In a dance, it's not one person versus another person. That would be a dance off, okay? Um, it's two people, right? Trying to put their steps together and hopefully at the end create something beautiful and aesthetic. And if you think of arguments that way, then you actually start to think of arguments more of like what we would call a calm dialogue. Where I'm trying to put something in the puzzle and you're trying to put something in the puzzle. And at the end of it, hopefully, we'll have something that's better than what either of us started out with. You'll be able to teach me some things. I'll be able to learn some new things. But what you're definitely not doing, right, is seeing your opponent as an opponent. You're probably not aroused to any kind of anger, uh, fear of loss, that kind of a thing. You're collaborating, right? You're working together. This works the same way with the metaphors we use about God. Um, which is why I think this theory is so important, okay? When we say things like God is Father, or God is King, or Lord, or Ruler, um, this is more than just a happenstance use of language, where we can sit back if we want to and say, how is he like a ruler? How is he not like a ruler? How is he like a father? How is he not like a father? It's actually a reflection of deep patterns of thinking in our mind that inherently affect how we experience God, how we relate to Him, how we understand Him. Um, you will know this for sure if you're ever in a conversation with someone who recoils at the metaphor that God is Father because they've had an abusive father or an absent father. For many of us, it's a safe metaphor. Um, and even for some who've had bad fathers, they're able to understand God the Father is a good father in contrast to my bad father. But there are some who, for them, fatherhood is so deeply ruined by their experience that the metaphor of God the Father doesn't just make them want to use different words, right? It, it creates a whole big roadblock in their mind. They can't relate, relate to fatherhood. They can't experience fatherhood. Um, all that they've experienced in that category has been negative, uh, has been bad. Um, the same way uh, you can tell that this is kind of true, this metaphor theory, is if you try to change metaphors and people get offended by them. So imagine I suggested today we stop saying God is he. Every time we talked about God, we said she, and we stopped the father analogy, and we say God is mother. And I opened up my closing prayer. Mother, um, and then keep going and praying. Now there actually are times in the Bible where God is used as a metaphor, or mothers used as a metaphor for God, 
but it's rare. Father's the overarching theme. Um, what you'd find, though, if you suggest that, and scholars have suggested it and gotten huge pushback, is people are like, no, 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 no. That offends me. And it's proof, right? They realize it's more than just the words at stake. If you switch the metaphor out, eventually a whole lot of things are going to change. How you relate, how you experience, how you act. Um, It's not just a language game. It goes deep down into how we think and experience the world around us. All of this to suggest that what if we took this metaphor, God is a lion, and really thought it through. And really allowed it to tug on the other ways that we think about God. As father, or as king, or as healer, or as shepherd. What, what would that, what difference would that make in how we think about God? And how we pray to God? And how we live lives in front of God? Or what, what difference would that make if we see God's word not like a fatherly, soft, soothing voice. There's the roar of a lion. It kind of sends shivers down your spine and means you act now or it's bad news. I think huge things happen. It's interesting to me that in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, he chooses for his Christ symbol a lion, Aslan. Um, Lewis is clear that it, you know the Narnia is Christian symbolism, but he says it's not necessarily allegory, just one for one, um, switching off. He says I was, it's a different world. I was trying to imagine what Christianity might be in a different world in Narnia. So it's not God coming out as a human, but God as a you know as a lion. He's the one who dies. Those kinds of things, and you get. Different experiences for the children, right? When they're introduced to Aslan, the lion. Uh, and they ask, is he safe? And they're told he's not safe, but he's good. And Christians have always kind of resonated with that. You know, fathers, sometimes you can control. Fathers are somewhat predictable, right? In the sense that you would hope, biologically, they always have this tie to protect you and guide you and want to see the best for you, that kind of a thing. Um, kings, um, in much the same way, um, we kind of understand what that is. We kind of get it and move on with it. Don't think about it too much. Um, but lions are much different. A lion is uncontrollable. A lion is unpredictable. Maybe you're that cute person on YouTube who has the lion that you play in the field with, right? But there's always that chance that lion, as he's growing up, is going to turn on you one day. They're unpredictable. Lions instill more fear than fathers. Now, all this is not to say that we should stick with God as lions, our only metaphor, right? No, there's lots of them in the scriptures. And I'm just suggesting we... Focus on this one as it's presented to us in the book of Amos. Um, God the Father and God the King are by far the two largest metaphors in the scriptures, and I think aptly so. Um, But God as lion, God's word as a roaring voice. 
is the roar of a lion. You know, when we go through seasons of Lent, we think about our sin, or we think about the way we're living, um, we think about how God speaks to us. Um, I think oftentimes we deal with sin and think about sin um, in the same way as we would think about disobeying a doting father. Right? Maybe he's a little disappointed in us. You know, he wants his best for us. Maybe he'll ground us for a couple of weeks. But there's no real ultimate fear there. Right? But you might experience sin and then a warning to stop sinning much differently if you were understanding God through the lens of the lion and his message to you to stop sinning as a roar from a lion. I'd encourage you to think through this week. You know, what does that metaphor mean to you? What does that evoke in your mind? What, what kind of aspects of God does that bring out for you that balance all the other metaphors that we have? Um, for God. So we meet in Amos 1-1-2, a shepherd and a lion. And those will be our two voices for the book of Amos. I'll conclude today with a couple of things I think that we can apply right away to our own lives. The first one is that um, God regularly chooses ordinary common people um, to not only hear his word, but then to be his messengers. Um, Amos, while he maybe was not an ignorant, kind of really poor peasant, um, was definitely not an elite ruling class trained scholar, right? And God comes to him and moves in him powerfully. Um, and one of maybe the greatest faults we have as a church is that we have maybe done it ourselves, maybe just by pastors doing it. We beat ourselves up so much that we feel like we'll never be useful for God, never could be useful for God. And you read the Bible, and it's all of these flawed people. Amos, we don't really hear about, like, you know, the skeletons in his closet. But most of the other big characters in the Bible, the big movers and shakers, do have these skeletons in their closet. And sometimes they're making skeletons as they do God's work. <clears throat> David and others. And so you and I, I think, shouldn't be surprised if God perhaps is interested in using you as a messenger. Using you to do something powerful and big in our church community, in your family, in your larger community. Uh, it seems like God, um, particularly revealed in Jesus, is not as interested in our past successes or failures as in our present willingness to follow him. Is that the attitude that we have? Or do, does every time an opportunity comes up, we think of every excuse why we can't do that? And we go, no, God's calling me. My past success doesn't qualify me. My past failure doesn't disqualify me. What matters right now is my willingness to go where he sends me and let him work through me. And the second thing, perhaps, that, that we can apply to our lives is that um, God inherently is someone who reveals himself to humankind. Oftentimes, I hear things, we hear things, perhaps, like, if only God would tell me this, if only God would speak to me about this, and they're usually very specific action items that maybe we don't get really clear revelation on. Um, but perhaps a more Christian way to view God's communication to us is not with the question, is he speaking, but with the question, are we listening? What if God isn't just whispering every now and then and 
we're confused trying to find out where it came from and grab onto the message. What if he's roaring a word to us? God is a God who reveals himself and his will to us. We'll see this nameless. He tells them very clearly, this is what I desire. This is what has upset me. This is what you need to do to avoid what's coming for you. God was ultimately revealed in Jesus, and then also revealed through the scriptures. I often think sometimes we hold out on God and try to put the blame on him for not speaking to us. When in reality, maybe we've just put in earphones <coughs> and decided not to listen or not go to the places where the roaring happens. And so both of those together, I think, this morning ask of us, you know, are we willing to be the messenger? Are we willing to listen to the message? Are we willing to go out and be ambassadors for God, for Christ? It's like Corinthians 5. We're the mouthpieces of God, um, like Amos. There's nothing too special about any of us in here, um, except that we serve a God who chooses people like us. And we serve a God who speaks to us and wants to speak and work through us. Uh, and so, as we begin our study on Amos, um, I pray that, that we would think these things through and perhaps adopt these attitudes in our daily lives. We pray with me?